0: Airline's confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Prattwhitney.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com/slash airlines and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, evening, whenever you listen to us, welcome. This is Airlines Confidential, and I'm Chris Chimes.
2: And I'm Ben Baldanza. Let me echo Chris's welcome to this week's show. For our flight plan today, we're going to cover some news like we always do, and then talk about airline labor and employee issues with Jerry Glass, a longtime industry veteran, and then take some questions. Chris, over to you.
1: Thanks, Ben. First up, all those shoots of green, the confidence and the optimism about the rebound of business travel. All seems to have been trampled over the past 10 days as the concerns about the Delta variant grow and hospitalizations reach their highest levels in the U.S. in more than six months. Carriers are even seeing a pullback in leisure demand. Southwest going so far as advising investors that it now doesn't expect to be profitable in Q3 as it sees a measurable decline in bookings than what had been projected for after Labor Day. OpenTable, owned by Bookings.com, is seeing comparable negatives in restaurant reservations, And while Disney reported a rebound in its theme park revenues last week, executives acknowledge uncertainty ahead. So, Ben, what do you think is going on in the airline C-suites right now?
2: It's tough, Chris. And some of what's going on is trying to get a really good understanding, I think, of how much of the reduction in bookings that airlines are seeing is truly just seasonal and how much of it is the Delta variant. Obviously, we know some of it's the Delta variant and the uncertainty that creates. But, you know, when I was at Spirit, we used to joke that September had six weeks because it really started on August 15th, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> meaning that the middle of August is the traditional end of summer travel, at least that uses airlines for families. So there is naturally a drop-off of leisure demand after that, and that's where we are right now. But what usually picks up at that point then is business travel. As kids are going back to school and businesses spool up again, that's when business picks up, and that's where Delta comes in. You know, one of the reasons people travel for business is to go to trade shows and conventions, and a few real big ones have been canceled already for this fall. A car show that was going to go on in the Northeast said, we're just not going to do that. And so if people aren't going to have big trade shows and conventions, that eliminates a lot of travel that would otherwise happen. Also, as we've talked about on this show, many executives, airline executives expressed confidence in business returning because offices were going back to work. And a lot of companies have put that on hold now. Some that said, People are coming back September 1, are coming back not till October. Some have said not till next year. Some have said until further notice. So everything has just added all this uncertainty. Now there's talks about whether or not people are going to need boosters for their vaccines or not. We don't even have everyone vaccinated yet. And we're talking about whether those who've been vaccinated need boosters. So I think what's going on right now is more of the same in terms of we would hope that a year and a half into this, we would be coming into some more confidence building and certainty, but the situation is uncertain as ever. On the one hand, it's great that 70% of all adults in the U.S. are vaccinated now and we should be better off in terms of that vaccines are available and we know they work and things like that. And yet Delta has thrown such a wrench into things that um, it wouldn't be surprising to me if the rest of this year is going to look more like last summer looked, meaning a lot of people just reticent to get on an airplane.
1: I'm afraid you're going to be correct here. And I know we took some criticism for some of our comments previously about the outlook for business travel. And, you know, it was well deserved, but also I think we were just trying to be a little more analytical and skeptical of some of the information. I know we had a listener, Jeffrey from Montpelier, France, who wrote in and said he works in international sales and He's ready to get back, but a lot of his customers, while their offices might be reopening, aren't allowing contractors or guests into buildings. So even that's going to factor in with regard to kind of offices slowly open back up, who are they going to let in? So I think we're going to have to just carefully watch this. Um, We'll talk a little bit uh, later in the show with Jerry Glass about some labor issues. My guess is We'll talk about some of these things, too, and how the industry can continue to build confidence in operations and get business travel back on board. Pratt & Whitney is the world's leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they can help power the future of flight, visit PrattWhitney.com. Ben, uh, meanwhile, amidst the doom and gloom of the past several weeks, JetBlue launched their long-awaited New York-London service this past week. You're on the board of JetBlue, so I don't expect you to break any confidences, but how did the company feel things went?
2: I think they went great. The flight was really well-received. The newly refined Mint product, which is their business class, people loved it and thought it was great. The city of London was really happy to receive JetBlue. I think there was a bit of nervousness in the competitive set of JetBlue really disrupting, especially the business fares into London with a really nice business class product that frankly is going to be a lot lower price than British Airways or Virgin or American or Delta usually charge. Overall, I think it went great. And the thing that is best about this, I think, Chris, is is that JetBlue is doing this with an airplane that they know and an airplane that they use on transcontinental routes, the A321. They didn't go out and get a brand-new wide body that complicated their airline a lot. And since they've got good experience flying things like Boston and New York to the West Coast, this flight really isn't any longer than that. It's different because it goes to another country but it's within sort of the scope of what they've been doing with a plane they've been doing so in many ways it was a natural extension of where they were and because of all that i think it went very well and they're excited about it and in another month or two they're going to they're going to have their first flight into gatwick airport as well
1: yeah the media coverage was great i mean i think it underscores how badly we want things to succeed, uh, the media even, uh, you know, wanting things to succeed and get back to business and for airlines. So um, it was very positive coverage. So let's hope the uh, operating environment continues to give JetBlue and all the other carriers in the market some space to grow. And then we were pretty tough on Spirit last week, Ben. What's your take on how they've been recovering from the meltdown of the past two weeks?
2: Well, operationally, they seem to have gotten things back in order, meaning that they've gotten the capacity that's loaded. They've gotten the people available to fly that capacity. And that means they haven't had to cancel nearly as many flights. I think the real issue for Spirit, Chris, is that they've spent the last five years on a really good and positive campaign to really improve their customer experience. They've moved up in on time. They've had a lot of their people trained by Disney. They refer to their customers as guests, which is a mental thing that sort of gets everybody in the right mode of how to treat people. And they've done a lot of that. And what I think, though, is that they disrupted so many people over the last couple of weeks, is how much of that goodwill that they've built up do they now have to rebuild back? You know, if an airline like Southwest messes up, they have such a long, long history of being a great airline and good customer service that people tend to give them the benefit of the doubt and they'll say, well, that's not the normal Southwest. We know they'll get that fixed. I don't know that Spirit has that brand credibility yet. And so it's possible that there are some thinking, oh, the... Well, they've been good the last couple of years, but now the real spirit's back again. And I hope that's not the case for them because they are a good company and getting their operation back has been important to them. I'm sure it was trying for everyone in that company and a lot of their customers as well. So now the question is the whole thing, they've rebuilt the operation. Now they got to rebuild the trust in their customer base.
1: Yeah, I talk a lot to PR students and PR groups and... To take the position, especially on the communication side, every day is dress rehearsal for that day when you need the goodwill of your stakeholders, whether it be your customers, your guests, your employees, whatever else. And so every day you need to go out and build on that reputation. So like you said, you can tap into that goodwill when it's necessary. So to your point, Spirit's been doing that very effectively the last five or six years, and we'll have to see if it's enough to carry them through, but they just have to get back to running a good airline, and again, showing their their guests slash customers that they can do it, and their their intention is to do it, and their ability is to do it, and again, take every day like dress rehearsals. So, It's a real thing, and it requires the attention of everybody up and down the company, and it seems like Spirit and and Ted Christie are, are focused on that, so we're all wishing them well.
2: Absolutely. We'll be right back to talk all things airline labor with Jerry Glass, but first, a reminder that many airlines rely on TA connections to book hotel rooms for those employees as they travel. TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management.
1: We're now joined by our friend and former colleague, Jerry Glass. Jerry is with f Solutions, but he's been a key player in the airline industry for probably 30 years or so, I'll let him tell that, advising airline executives and working closely with employee groups on a variety of issues. Ben, Jerry, and myself, no pun intended with the ice cream, uh, all work together at US Airways. Hard to believe it's been almost 20 years since we were doing that gig. But Jerry, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me, and what a pleasure to to have my two former colleagues uh, on with me. This is terrific.
2: Well, Jerry, it's great to have you join us. There's so much going on in the industry right now, and none of it can get done without airline employees. So this discussion should be very enlightening for all of our listeners. So why don't we start out? Tell us about your career and what role you currently play in this great industry.
3: So I started out with the labor policy organization for the airline industry called Airline Industrial Relations Conference, which was made up of all the U.S. scheduled airlines. I worked there for nine years, then went into business for myself under the uh, heading of Jay Glass and Associates and started to do airline labor relations and employee relations work, representing management in negotiations or advising them on labor matters or providing advice in negotiations. Eventually, I ended up, as you two know, at U.S. Airways as the executive vice president and chief HR officer during incredibly turbulent times, Uh, two bankruptcies, two reorganizations. And then after three and a half years, U.S. Airways merged with America West. I left the merged carrier and went back into business. Uh, under the name of f Solutions Group, uh, we expanded our business into a nationwide HR and labor relations consulting firm, which is where I am today. I spend the bulk of my time negotiating and providing labor advice to uh, major airlines, ULCCs, regionals, and cargo carriers.
1: So, Jerry, we're going to talk about labor relations and employee and HR issues through the course of the conversation. Um, One thing we were discussing last week was the United Airlines mandate, if you will, uh, with regard to all of their frontline employees being vaccinated. Are are you surprised that you haven't seen much labor pushback by this decision?
3: I'm a little bit surprised, but but not so much, especially, you know, with respect to the flight attendant group, which is represented by AFA, these are the frontline employees that are probably exposed to the elements more than anybody else in the industry. So I'm not surprised there hasn't been pushback from AFA because frankly, uh, the flight attendants should want themselves and and they'd want all the passengers to be be vaccinated. ALPA has not come out either for or against the vaccinations, all they've said is we want to talk to management some more. And they do have a previous side letter that said that vaccinations were voluntary and not mandatory. So they do have a little bit to work through. But let's face it, I mean, if you're an airline employee, a frontline employee, whether you're an agent or a flight attendant or a pilot, anybody that that deals with the public, you want to and you need to be protected. So I'm not terribly shocked that there hasn't been more pushback from labor because ultimately this is in the best interests of of their members.
2: Another thing we've talked about on the show Jerry is the idea of pilot shortages. Certainly before the pandemic that was a big topic in the industry, then that became kind of a back burner topic when lots of airplanes were grounded. What do you think the real story is here? Is there really now or soon a serious pilot shortage, you think, for the industry?
3: I think that the pilot shortage is going to show up and is starting to show up among the regional airlines and what I would call the second tier airlines. In other words, if you're United or American or Delta or Southwest or FedEx or UPS, Those carriers are not really going to struggle to hire pilots because the fact of the matter is they're at the top of the pyramid. And so it's the flowing up how when when pilots are being recruited from regional carriers and lower paying cargo carriers, that's the group that potentially could be struggling There are going to be tens of thousands of pilots that are retiring over the next five to 10 years. And the number of pilots that are seeking their ATPs being type rated is not keeping up with the projected demand. So, yes, I am already starting to see some pockets of shortages or enhanced attrition, you know, the regionals, for example, they all project how much attrition they're gonna have. I think all of them are surprised at how much higher the attrition is than what they have projected. So that's the tip of the spear where I think you're really going to see and are starting to see now uh, some of the problems that are gonna develop. Those airlines are offering signing bonuses, Endeavor just signed a flow-through agreement up to Delta. They increase their pay. And generally, what, when that happens, other carriers follow. So you're going to see pay and bonuses increase among the regional airlines in order to attract people because they're, they're competing against each other uh, in a finite pool of pilots. And those airlines, in my opinion that can offer flow to the major partner, can offer competitive pay and quick upgrades will be the ones that do better than those that can't because this generation of pilots wanna move from the right seat to the left seat as quickly as possible and then wanna move on. And if you can address those issues, you will be successful in recruiting.
1: So a two-part follow-up, Jerry. One, I was reading something last week that more senior-level pilots are leaving early at a faster rate than the industry was expecting. So that's potentially contributing to the potential shortage. I don't know if you're seeing that. And then the second piece being with so many of the wide bodies at the majors and international carriers being retired, is that going to change the dynamics of pilot pay at the top with regard to kind of fewer wide bodies to fly. That's where a lot of pilots you know, want to end up their career to make the most money related to their pension. So how is all this factoring into pilot relationships?
3: What it's going to turn into is just higher pay, better compensation for the highest paying equipment. Now, eventually, hopefully, international markets will come back where the wide bodies are mostly utilized. And so the 777 and the 787 rates will be, from a historical standpoint, probably the highest they've ever been in the in the history of the industry. But as you point out, Chris, I mean, there aren't as many of them. So there'll be a little bit of stagnation for some period of time until all the borders open up in, in Europe and Asia and, and across the world. But you know, I think eventually, and it could be another, it could be easily another couple of years before we get back to the kind of international travel we saw pre-pandemic. I think that this is a temporary issue and, and not a systemic one that's gonna last a really long time. So I think this that part of it will take care of itself. And, and if you could just, Chris, repeat the first question.
1: With regard to a lot of senior level yeah, pilots yeah. leaving, earlier than their 65, age 65 mandated retirement.
3: Right. So what happened during COVID was the, uh, the carriers offered early outs to pilots who had hit like age 63, 64. And I don't think that the airlines anticipated the kind of traffic that we've seen up to this point this summer. And so as a result, they were caught flat footed and are behind on training pilots. As you guys both know, you don't train a pilot who's been out for months, just you know, in a day or two. It, it takes weeks, if not months, to get somebody back fully qualified. So the pipeline is stuck right now because people are in the sims getting requalified, and that makes it more difficult to hire off the street and fill those sims because the sims are are filled with people getting requalified who are ready work for the airlines. This too is going to take some time to shake out. But again, like my other comment, I think it's temporary and and uh, hopefully by the end of the year or the first quarter next year the carriers will have caught up in their training needs and they'll be uh they'll be doing fine after that.
2: Well, and let's hope that uh, international travel is coming back by then, too, Jerry.
3: Oh, you, you can say that again. I mean, that, that you know, it's, it's interesting. I was in the car and I was listening to Peter Greenberg. He had a spot on, on CBS and he was talking about what an incredible time it is to fly to Europe right now if you're fully vaccinated and the countries opened up because there were no crowds. And uh, during the summer, of course, Ben, you, you and I both know this, and Chris does too. It's usually packed in Europe, and and it's not packed there. So, for those that are properly vaccinated, have the have the paperwork, and can get around, it's a great time to go to
2: Europe. I think that's probably right. You know, Jerry, the last big labor strike in the U.S. was back in 2010 at Spirit when I was there. Yep. Do you think it's possible that we won't see another strike among U.S. airlines? They're so rare, right?
3: They are very rare to begin with. And as a result of consolidation, if you're American, United, Delta, or Southwest, you are so big right now that the way the laws are written under the railway labor act i think it'll be very difficult to strike uh, as opposed to ending up in what's called a presidential emergency board so just to quickly recap for the listeners under the railway labor act you start in direct negotiations after some period of time undefined time you go into mediation if you can't get an agreement in direct negotiations And if you can't get an agreement in in mediation, at some point in time, and generally it's years and years in mediation, the National Mediation Board, which oversees the Railway Labor Act, administers the Railway Labor Act, will put you into a 30-day cooling off period. At at the end of that cooling off period, the union is free to engage in self-help, meaning a strike. Uh, The airline is free to lock them out. But under the Railway Labor Act, the goals are to avoid interstate uh, commerce from being disrupted. And these four airlines that I mentioned are so big that if any of them went on strike, it would be devastating for the, for the nation. As a result, uh, under the law, instead of having a strike, you can end up in a situation where the, the president appoints an emergency board and that emergency board convenes, and during the first, first 30 days of the emergency board, they hold a hearing and issue a report. And then there's a 30-day cooling off period, which generally results in a settlement. So if you're a big carrier or you're a passenger listening to this, I don't think there's going to be the risk of a strike because they're, they're too big and would cause too much of disruption. If you are smaller than that, like a Spirit, like a JetBlue, Frontier, or a regional or cargo airline, then I think the normal rules would apply and you could still see a strike. Now, what's different, Ben and Chris, now is that for the first time in a really long time, we're going to have a Democratic-controlled National Mediation Board. Uh, Once the new member who has been nominated, Deidre Hamilton, is voted on and confirmed by the Senate, there'll be a two to one democratic majority. And traditionally, when the Democrats are uh, in control, they listen to labor a little bit more. And right now, labor holds the upper hand in, in negotiations. And so if they ask for a release into a cooling off period, it's more likely to happen than it would have been in the last five, six, seven years. Even with that comment, any mediation board is always reluctant to put the parties into a cooling off period which has the potential for a strike because they they're worried about the impact of passengers who are going to get disrupted and i think you know ben talking about the spirit strike in 2010 and you know this better than anybody i think the mediation board didn't take into account the fact that Spirit didn't have interline agreements, wasn't going to be putting people on other airlines, and the tens of thousands of customers, passengers, that were disrupted as a result of that strike. And that's what makes the mediation board somewhat leery of just uh, agreeing to put somebody into a 30-day cooling-off period just because they asked for it. Because no matter what the carrier size is, There are two things. Number one, there are tens of thousands of people booked on any of these carriers at any one time. And number two, uh, planes are generally, you know, 80 to 90 percent full as it is. So you can't get a seat on another carrier, even if you had an interline agreement. That's why the mediation board generally is very conservative when they decide that they're going to put somebody into a cooling off period. I know that was a long-winded answer, but it's kind of a complicated issue, and uh, I just wanted to walk through it for everybody.
1: So given all that, Jerry, as it relates to the RLA, uh, are you a fan or a foe?
3: (laughs) I'm largely a fan. I think that the system-wide nature of the act, meaning you have to represent the entire group, and unlike the National Labor Relations Act, where it's by location— Uh, In other words, if we were under the National Labor Relations Act, there could be a strike in D.C., there could be a strike in Denver, there could be a strike in Houston. I mean, there could be a strike at Dallas by just one of the groups. So the system-wide nature of, of representation is terrific. Where I sometimes get a little bit frustrated is the length of time it takes to negotiate. And as somebody that negotiates under both acts, you know, the other act, uh, the NLRA has expiration dates where if you don't have a deal by a certain date, barring the parties extending voluntarily, you're going to end up in a strike. And the fact that there's a deadline actually helps the parties uh, focus and get to the important issues and 99 times out of 100 settle. Under the Railway Labor Act, where you only have amendable dates and and negotiations can go on for many years, what happens over time is two things. Number one, the attacks start to get personal. You you see unions attacking uh, corporate leadership, which isn't very helpful. But more importantly, business changes. And if you are going years without an agreement, it makes it hard to make some of the changes That the airlines need to make because you have status quo requirements under the law so i don't chris i don't have the solution on how to solve the problem of these contract negotiations going on sometimes it seems forever but i i think there needs to be more discussion between labor and management as to how to get to a point in time where this doesn't take Forever, I mean, the the process itself, even when you start negotiations, um, you have contracts that are 50 or 60 years old, yet uh, the union will open on 200 or 300 separate items. And it it has always baffled me how you can have such a mature contract and find 300 issues to open on. And I think it's the result of the fact that there's no deadline. And the expectation of both parties is that negotiations are going to go on for years. I just don't think that's helpful to to either side. Employees want and deserve pay raises. Businesses want and deserve to be able to make changes and be dynamic in how they operate their business. And the law itself, I think, uh, hurts both sides a little bit in that regard. By the way, I I will tell you, I'm probably in the minority on this, but it's just how I feel personally about it as as somebody that's negotiated, you know, three, 400 contracts.
2: That's great insight, Jerry. And and I agree with you And both businesses and unions, especially like certainty and just knowing what's going to happen. Right. And those long, long negotiating periods just add a lot of uncertainty and make both sides nervous.
3: Yeah, they do. I mean, Ben, you you know this as the CEO of a, of a big airline, um, how frustrating it is when you're told, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that because we're in negotiations and we haven't gotten those changes yet.
2: Well, Jerry, we've been talking a lot on this show about the overall labor shortage in the U.S., especially in hospitality and travel. Airlines aren't excluded, of course, and it seems to be a contributing factor to the real poor service record we've seen this summer, and it's affected a lot of airlines. How does the industry crawl out of this? I think you talked about it a little bit in terms of pilots, but for all the other groups, how do they get out of this? And is there any airline that you think are doing a particularly good job to stabilize their workforce and staffing right now?
3: So the shortages are in a few areas. For the most part, it's on the ramp, meaning the, the folks that load and unload your baggage, and it is with the highly trained mechanics. So it's less of a factor with flight attendants It is a bit of a factor with uh, airport agents, but not as much as with the baggage handlers and the mechanics. So let me kind of focus on those. If you're a a fleet service, a baggage handler, you have options. Right now, you know, the Targets, the Amazons, the Costcos, all those folks are hiring people, and they're hiring them in warehouse positions. They're growing like crazy. And the starting salaries are, you know, call it, in, in a lot of cases, $17, $18 an hour to start, plus a signing bonus. You're inside, you're not subject to the elements, you're not on your knees loading and unloading aircraft, you're not outside either in the stifling heat or the bitter cold. And so what airlines have to do is recognize who their competition is, and they are gonna have to increase wages in order to compete with the kinds of companies that i mentioned this is new and it is not those warehouse positions in the past were very low paying positions um, but they are no longer uh, low paying when it comes to mechanics what i think needs to be done is an increased emphasis on vocational training and vocational schools and the unions Uh, and management need to embrace robust apprenticeship programs. I do work outside the industry, as I mentioned, and with companies that have skilled tradesmen, and they're finding the same problems that we're seeing in the industry. Where do you find the machinists, the electricians, the guys that work on HVAC systems, on boiler systems, um, highly skilled avionics mechanics. These are people that are only going to come into the industry if they, number one, see a future, a high-paying future, uh, and number two, get the proper training. And they can only get the training two ways, three ways, actually. Through school, formal school, on-the-job training, or through the union's training programs that they have. And in the union's training programs or with going to school at night, apprenticeship programs, um, which have been dormant in the industry for, you know, 30, 40 years, need to come back and need to take an important role going forward.
1: So, Jer, before we wrap up, uh, you want to make a prediction about whether the flight attendants will seek another extension on the mask mandate and whether that will be successful?
3: Oh, this is a tough call, Chris. Um, I, I think that they will ask for an extension on the mask mandate. I mean, how could they not, given the soaring number of cases we're seeing and the large percentage of the population that's still unvaccinated? I, I think that, you know, as it is, flight attendants have the toughest job in the industry right now. They have to worry about their own health. Then they have to police the masking on the planes. And then they have to deal with the, with the uh, passengers that refuse to comply and, and act aggressively and, and just don't behave themselves. As it is right now, there is some group of flight attendants that are just afraid to come to work and that this is not what they signed up for. I can't imagine what the level of absenteeism would be if there isn't an extension of the mask mandate. Their jobs are close to impossible right now. And uh, not having a mask mandate, I I think is gonna scare a lot more people, both the flight attendants and the passengers who have been vaccinated and will continue to wear masks. So I think they will ask for an extension. That's my personal view.
2: I think that's probably the right thing, too, Jerry. Well, Jerry, this has been great. I have one more question, or maybe it's more of a comment. When we were all at U.S. Airways, you taught me something that has stayed with me since. I think it was when we were in a fairly tense time with our call center agents on their contract. But you looked at me and you said, Ben, if it feels good, don't say it. <laughs> and I have lived by that rule since, Jerry, and I've taught it to my son. Did you make that up on the spot or have you told others this? It's just great advice.
3: I tell, I tell everyone this. And uh, the, the funny thing is, Ben, Doug Parker, you know, I do, I do a lot of work from American every once in a while. Doug says, I think it's time to invoke the Jerry rule. And um, I do think it's important. And look, I'll be the first to admit, I don't abide by my own rule 100% of the time. Um, But I do think, you know, when you're in negotiations, both sides need to take a deep breath and think about what is important. And what is important is getting an agreement that fairly and adequately compensates employees, gives them a, a decent quality of life, but yet allows the airline to operate as efficiently and, as, uh, and and being as flexible as they can. I always say in negotiations, Ben, and, and as a former marketing executive, I know you'll appreciate this, is let's not negotiate over safety. That's a given, but what we do wanna do and what our goal is as a company, my goal is is to bring them a contract that allows marketing to do what it does best, which is generate revenue. And our contracts should not restrict marketing from their ability to go out, do creative things, and generate the most revenue possible. So I like to live by, by that rule, Ben. And when I negotiate contracts, I want to give marketing as much space as I can give them So I don't have to go back and say, I'm sorry, you can't do that route or you you can't do the timing on that because uh, the contract prevents it. And I've always lived by that. And that's what I try to achieve on on behalf of of the airlines that I represent.
1: Well, Jerry, what I'm going to say does feel good. So I'm going to say it. Uh, It's (laughs) always great to talk to you. It's always fun to talk to you. Uh, I miss seeing you. And so this is going to have to be the next best thing for a while. But uh, thanks for
3: joining us. My pleasure, and uh, thank you both for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks so much, Jerry. Okay. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute.
0: The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. <phone rings>
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks again to Jerry Glass for joining us and reminding us why he's so good at what he does. And now's the part of the show where we turn the show over to our listeners. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202 964 or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms And you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Ben, our first question is all the way from Italy, where I wish I was right now. Hi there, Ben and Chris. It's João again. Uh, Hope you're well. I finally got the COVID vaccine, which means a year after arriving in Europe, I can finally enjoy the marvels of the local ultra-low-cost carriers. Two weeks ago, I found a fantastic deal, a 30-euro round trip from Pisa to Palermo, with Wiz Air, five days before the flight. The flight to Palermo was quite full, but the leg back to Pisa only had 76 passengers on an A320neo. I know Wiz is very aggressive with respect to growth, but in my view, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least here in Italy, they're just dumping capacity and seeing if it sticks. Since COVID started, they've operated bases in Milan, Catania, Bari, Palermo, and now Rome. I think the fact that all of their... 320 NEOs are based in Italy now shows the size of the challenge they've got on their hands. So my question goes to Ben and his ultra-low-cost carrier experience. How can WIZ get profitable and win loyalty of the leisure traveler in this market, fighting with a heavyweight like Ryanair? Take the Pisa-Palermo route, for example. Ryanair has a huge operating base, an established customer base in Pisa, and broader Tuscany as well as Frequency. Some days they have four runs to Palermo while Wiz Air has only four per week. In this part of the industry, can you turn a profit by just having the lowest price? What strategy would you adopt, Ben, if you were Wiz? And is it scientifically possible to counter Ryanair in some other way?
2: Well, this is a great question, and thanks for this. I think Wiz is a great airline, and Wiz can compete effectively with Ryanair. The point you make about the Palermo Pisa is very valid, but there are a number of customers who will buy almost exclusively on price. We used to have a joke when I was at Spirit that we would say, time isn't money if all you have is time, and there are some customers for which that's true. That said, Ryanair is also a really good airline and a really low-cost airline. What Wiz can do is keep its costs lower than Ryan, uh, which I think its costs are lower than Ryan. And what Wiz has been doing for a number of years is starting a lot of new routes and then determining which one's will be long-term contributors in the network or not. At one point years ago, Joe Verratti, the CEO of Wiz, told me that in a given year, they may start a hundred new routes and they're happy if they end up keeping 30 to 40 of them. That gives you a sense of how they've been planning. Now, they're a little bigger and they're a little older now, so I don't know if that's that describes their growth in Italy right now. But the fact is they've got good experience at deploying lots of new capacity, figuring out quickly what works and doesn't, keeping their airport costs nicely variable, meaning they don't put huge investments in the airports without knowing long-term if they're going to be there. And Wiz has been competing with Ryanair since the day they started. So the two companies know each other really well. They compete in Poland. They compete in Hungary. They compete in the UK. They compete in a lot of places. So I think Italy is just one more battlefield for two really good companies that I think both have a role to play in European ULCCs. Both well-run companies too. Great question though.
1: Well, listeners... Remember, Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear, and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear.
2: Chris, here's a question for you since you're the PR guy. It's from Nigel in Piscataway, New Jersey. Do you think it would be helpful for Delta Airlines to change to a different name because it might make people think of the COVID Delta variant?
1: (laughs) That's a good question, Nigel. But I think Delta is going to be okay. They've got over 100 years of brand equity built into that name. You know, Corona Beer is doing just fine right now, although I'm sure they're also happy that we're talking about COVID and not the coronavirus anymore. Same as if there was a hurricane named Ralph, Ralph's supermarket chain on the West Coast would power through that or Wendy's hamburger chain or whatever else. In those rare instances where a company rebrands, it's usually to escape something they have done and they want to move on or they're trying to reposition themselves in the marketplace in some other way. Uh, you know, two somewhat average electronics companies were Lucky's and Gold Star. Uh, when they combined, they became LG. They also elevated their status with appliances and consumer products, and and now they're much more highly regarded than they were previously. Or when Kentucky Fried Chicken became KFC, they wanted consumers to think of them as more than a bucket of unhealthy fried chicken. So valid question, but I think Delta will be fine and we'll probably be talking about something else uh, in another three or four months.
2: Well, I think that's the right answer, Chris. Although to Nigel's point, I've chuckled when I've seen headlines like Delta adds uncertainty to fall travel and people aren't traveling because of Delta. And there have been headlines like that. And I said, man, this has to be driving those folks in Atlanta crazy. Well, before we get to finer wine, we want to thank the Seabury Capital Group a specialty finance and investment banking firm with a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore the global region scale at seaburycapital.com. Chris, I'm gonna toss this finer wine your way. It's from Ismet in Zanesville, Ohio. I fly Southwest about 20 times per year. Due to no change fees, it's been very convenient. Now all the other airlines also offer no change fee. Lately, Southwest has increased their fees much more than other airlines. They use the scam of mentioning no fee up to two check-in baggage, but if you compare their prices with other airlines on the same time schedule, you will see that the difference of fares of Southwest and other airlines is more than you would pay for two checked-in baggage for other airlines. For example, one upcoming flight from Columbus to Austin in mid-October, Southwest is $750 versus American Airlines, $450. So basically, Southwest always charges the customers up front as if they're checking in two bags, even though most only have a carry-on and pay the extra fee. Simply check in any route and compare their fees with other airlines. The difference will be more than you would pay to check in two bags on other airlines. Worse is when I sent them a message regarding to this, I got a very arrogant answer. Not so friendly skies as they claim. Chris,
1: is this a finer wine? Ismet, I'm sorry. This is a wine. I think you've discovered what a lot of people have known for a long time, which is Southwest isn't always the lowest fare in the market. But that's also why they have have chosen not to be displayed in comparison shopping places like Expedia Orbitz or other online uh, marketplaces. Uh, Southwest does a lot of – Great things, and they do it very well. So they're not scamming anybody. Um, they're just choosing to position their fares in certain ways. People like them because of some level of transparency, or they've you know historically not had change fees, and historically have not charged for bags. So their their customer base likes that consistency and likes that dependability of, of their operations. So you just happened to stumble on this just recently so you know it's a wine if you want to shop around it takes more time sometimes again time is money but uh nothing new here and uh, sorry it's taken so long for you to discover it
2: good answer chris people choose which airline they fly for lots of reasons and many choose southwest for a lot even though their prices have gotten a little higher <laughs> Well, as we close down CHOP for the week, my shout-out goes to Miami Airport. Miami Airport, for many, many years, was where you went in South Florida if you were traveling internationally, but generally at very high fares, while the airport up the road, Fort Lauderdale, welcomed carriers like Spirit, JetBlue, Frontier, Southwest, and others, and really grew as, if you wanted a low fare, you went to Fort Lauderdale. And then Miami sort of figured it out. And they changed their pricing structure, meaning what they charge airlines to operate there. And now you have Frontier flying there and then Spirit announcing they're going to put a bunch of flights there and JetBlue going there. And even non-low-cost airlines, Emirates Airlines, moving their flight from Fort Lauderdale to Miami. So congratulations, Miami, for figuring out how to be competitive in this tough space and starting to re-attract airlines that first didn't want to use you.
1: That's a good one, Ben. My shout-out is a double shout-out to three-year-old Delta Girardi and the Delta Airlines. Uh, We talked earlier about the Delta brand name as it relates to the Delta variant. Well, Delta the airline sent Delta the little girl a Delta care package that included a Delta backpack, an airplane model, and some Delta-branded Biscoff cookies, letting her know it's cool to be known as Delta, and I agree, and great little story that's been making the rounds. With that, we'll sign off for the week. Hope to see you again next week.
2: Thanks for listening, and I hope Delta Girardi is listening too. Have a great week.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.